Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 27th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. Tuberculosis isn't back because it never really goes away. We have a series of web articles up this week about the savage rise of TB in a multi-drug resistant form in Russia. They were written by veteran journalist Merrill Guzner. He was the chief Asia correspondent and chief economics correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. He's now the director of the Integrity and Science Project at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. I called him at his office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Merrill. Great to talk to you today. Pleasure to be with you. This is a, an incredibly ambitious package that we have up on the website that you've pretty much done in its entirety. First, tell us, how what were you doing in Siberia? Well, uh, I was asked to go there by Scientific American uh, as part of a sort of a planned tour that had been put together by some uh, nonprofit organizations that wanted to show off their efforts over the last decade in improving the way uh, tuberculosis in general and in particular drug-resistant tuberculosis, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, was being treated uh, in a corner of Siberia uh, where they thought it was a good model for what could be done around the world. Now, of course, uh, you know, there was a, several journalists on the trip. Uh, Scientific American paid for the whole trip. Uh, but that's what took me out there. Uh, I had been a foreign correspondent in the past uh, when I was working for the Chicago Tribune and had, hadn't been in Russia since uh, 1992. And even then, it was in the far Russian Far East. So uh, it was interesting to return the con- to the country uh, almost two decades later and see the remarkable economic changes that had been underway, but also many of the social problems that were still there. Now, TB was not a problem of this magnitude the last time you were there. Well, you know, it was just at that point when uh, Soviet communism had fallen, uh, Boris Yeltsin was president, and, you know, a new democracy was being born in Russia. At least that was the way it was being portrayed. Uh, but the transition from the old system to the new system was very rough. And it was right at that point where the old economy was collapsing. And uh, the problems that came from them had not yet emerged, and uh, but would within two or three years after I was there. Uh, in particular, a lot of people lost their jobs. There was a huge increase in crime, unemployment. Well, I guess the better, better way to put it is unemployment and then the things that flow from that crime, uh, drug abuse, uh, IV drug use, an AIDS epidemic, and, of course, uh, a tuberculosis epidemic. The prison population in Russia soared uh, in the uh, days after the fall, in the years after the fall of communism. Uh, well over a million people uh, ended up in jail. Uh, they're now down to about 75% of that as the economy has improved. But it was really uh, a really a fast-growing situation in, in those days. And that really, by the middle of the 90s, you had a full-blown uh, tuberculosis epidemic, uh, really, which is coincident uh, with uh, poverty. It, tuberculosis, in the end, is a disease of poverty and stress. And uh, it emerged in full force under the uh, deteriorating social conditions, especially in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Now, Siberia and the Russian Far East are, uh, you know, it's fascinating in its own right, but it's also just a, a kind of case study because this same kind of thing does happen anywhere in the world and can happen anywhere in the world. I mean, here in New York City, we saw a, a, a big uh, comeback by TB and multidrug-resistant TB in the mid-90s as well. 
just as in Russia it was centered, uh, the epicenter of the uh, epidemic was in the prisons. It sort of was its starting point. You have a lot of people all of a sudden in crowded conditions who are undergoing tremendous stress. One thing people don't realize is that a third of the world's population has what's called latent TB in them. But their immune systems have combated it successfully on their initial infection. And it basically stays submerged within your body if you have it, uh, can for your entire life. But what happens is, is that if you're under tremendous stress, poor nutrition, uh, you know, your immune system becomes weakened and it can emerge again and become a virulent infection. And that's what happened in Russia. And there is some thought that when this emerged in the New York City prison system in the mid-90s, uh, that it in fact had been introduced there by some of the Russian population that had left the former Soviet Union, wound up in New York, there's a very large Russian population in New York, and that many, some of those people ended up in the prison system, and uh, just as it spread a plague in Siberia, it spread it in New York City. Uh, the pioneering work of who's now the health commissioner, Tom Frieden, uh, was very successful in stamping out and showing that you can, in fact, treat tuberculosis. And uh, some of the techniques that he used there uh, were uh, later uh, transferred back to Russia by some of the NGOs that we visited with. That's fascinating. I, I had never heard the connection before between the Russian outbreak and the New York outbreak. I thought the New York outbreak was homegrown, and it, and it may be, but it's a really interesting theory that the uh, the two are intimately connected. Um, tell, tell me about the kind of treatment that you have to perform. It's incredibly labor-intensive. Tuberculosis uh, was, you know, if you go back into the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, it was sort of like cancer was today. There was a kind of almost like mythology around the disease, almost a romance around it. It was Yeah, La, la Boheme. Is, is, exactly. It's a romantic and, disease, but it is nothing like that in real life. Right. And the age-old scourge, mankind thought there was this miraculous cure that emerged in the late 1940s when Dr. Selman Waxman uh, discovered streptomycin, and there was a cure, it was thought, for tuberculosis. But what was rapidly discovered, literally within a few years of the introduction of streptomycin to treat tuberculosis, was that TB had the ability to mutate, and or, or there were resistant strains that would quickly become dominant, and uh, they would, uh, therefore, the drug as a single drug was not effective. And over the years, uh, tuberculosis became one of the first diseases where it was widely recognized that you had to use multiple antibiotics in order to cure it. And it's just a question of statistics. If you hit an organism in two, three, or four places at the same time, uh, it becomes almost statistically impossible for a mutant to survive that kind of environment. So tuberculosis became a disease. You had to treat with multiple drugs. And the World Health Organization uh, by the 1980s had adopted this as its primary way of treating tuberculosis. It's called directly observed therapy, and it's called DOTS. And uh, the reason why it had to be directly observed is because you had to hit tuberculosis with multiple drugs over a long period of time, about six to nine months. It's a very relatively slow-growing organism. It only reproduces once a day, so that you have to, you know, some of the drugs only hit it at the point at which it's reproducing, 
And then, of course, uh, there are, like, as we talked about earlier, uh, latent tuberculosis uh, deep within the lungs very often uh, that, you know, it will take a while before the drugs uh, can hit them at a point at which they will be vulnerable. And so uh, this became the recommended therapy, directly observed therapy. Well, as you can well imagine, in many settings in the world, enforcing that kind of regimen over that long a period of time, taking the same drugs every day, some of which have nasty side effects, for six to nine months, there was a lot of breakdowns in places. And, of course, what happens when that occurs is that the resistant strains, who are the longest lived in those particular bodies, become dominant. And then you have what is called multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And that, of course, is where, where the new programs come in, where there's now new antibiotics. Some of the fluoroquinolones get added to the older regimens of older antibiotics. And what you have is treatment for up to two years. Again, directly observed therapy every day for close to two years in order to wipe out multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. We have this image in our minds that MDR-TB, as it's known, is a worse disease than TB. That's not really the case. They're really the same disease. It's just that it has become much harder to cure. And, of course, tuberculosis will kill you if you do not successfully treat it. And so uh, that became the sort of goal of these nonprofits that were doing work first in Peru, like Partners in Health out of Boston, which is very famous, run by Paul Farmer. He sort of adopted, he went into a low-income setting. In the first case, it was Peru. And they said, you know something? If you're going to tackle the tuberculosis epidemic in this country, which means treating the vast majority of people with that six- to nine-month therapy of directly observed therapy with the four drugs, that you really have to create the infrastructure to treat those cases that have already failed, the multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, that if you build that kind of system that can deliver it there, you will get the others too. And that's what they tried in Peru with some success. And that's the system that beginning about a decade ago, they exported into Russia. Because in Russia, you had some people, like the people we visited in Tomsk, which is a province in the central plateau, about three time zones east of Moscow, where the public health authorities there had a huge outbreak in their prisons, but they were open to new ideas. They were not wedded to the old old Soviet style of centralized medicine, which was very dependent on a lot of operations. It was almost idiosyncratic in the way they used drugs. But Russia under communism had pretty much gotten their tuberculosis under control. And it was only with the fall of communism that they had this huge outbreak to where they really needed much more public health-oriented approaches than the kind of idiosyncratic approach that they had had in the past. And so what they did then was that they, working with partners in health, they said, okay, let's try this DOTS approach, and let's try this DOTS plus approach. In other words, going the full two years for the MDR-TB, and if we institute that kind of system, we'll be getting all the people who are sick, and therefore we won't be getting reintroduction or as much reintroduction back into the community if we're successful, and that we'll be able to tamp down the epidemic. It would be a wonderful story. I could tell you now that they've been tremendously successful. In fact, in the last two or three years, you've begun to see a reduction in the total amount of cases in Tomsk province. And, you know, is this because
because the economy is improving? Is it because they're treating it better? They're certainly treating it better. Uh, so you like to think that that's part of it. But there hasn't been the really sophisticated studies that you would need to do to sort of say that the, the public health approach that they've introduced there was really the uh, factor. Uh, it's always important to remember that uh, when economies improve, uh, public health problems tend to diminish, uh, like a tuberculosis outbreak. And in the last three or four years, especially with the rising price of oil, the Russian economy has been improving quite a bit. And uh, we saw that when we were in Tomsk. There was a lot of cars on the streets. There were a lot of stores that were open. Uh, there seemed to be a much higher level of prosperity, at least according to the people. I wasn't there three or four years or five or six or ten years ago, but to the people I talked with there said that the economy was much better today than it had been in the very fairly recent past. I just want to reiterate, directly observed therapy, or DOT, requires somebody to actually watch the patient take their drugs multiple times a day. It's incredibly labor-intensive. Exactly. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a system that really requires a hands-on approach uh, by people working in the healthcare system. And, uh, and they've created a very sophisticated system there of actually people who, you know, many of the people are alcoholics living in very low-income housing projects, uh, IV drug abusers uh, who are trying to get their lives together, and they've actually even created a system which they call Sputnik, uh, where a driver and a nurse will actually go to the homes every day of the people who they're treating for MDR-TB to make sure that they take their drugs. Because people don't like to take these drugs necessarily every day for months and years. Well, two things. Ha there's two reasons for that. One is the drugs have some side effects. Uh, some of the antibiotics have well-known, you know, they, they give you bad dreams, hallucinations, and, and, and uh, you know, it's not universal, but there is a percentage of people who are more affected than that. Very difficult to keep down for some people. Uh, but just as importantly, when you're treat successfully treating tuberculosis, you're not sick for six to nine months. You're only sick, you know, your, your disease becomes your sputum, your ability to pass it to other people. Uh, it goes the, the the bacterium load goes down so low after the first few months that you are sputum negative. In other words, you're not even infectious anymore. So you don't have symptoms of the disease either. You're not coughing your blood or hacking the way that you would with tuberculosis when it was really active and raging within your body. So it, unattended, you might think, hey, I'm cured. Why should I take all these drugs with all these side effects for another four months or nine months? And a lot of people would do that. That's why the preferred way of treating this is called directly observed therapy, hands-on, very labor-intensive, as you said, to make sure that these people wipe out that disease inside them. And Paul Farmer has had a great deal of success. I mean, he's an amazing guy. But uh, also in Haiti, I, I believe, with uh, DOT and HIV. Exactly, yes. And, you know, Paul Farmer and Partners in Health is the group who have been working in Tom's to set up these programs. Uh, we interviewed a number of their people there. Uh, but they have a very important philosophy when they go out there. They, they have, they, their feeling is that we're there to advise, and it's really that we have to build the local infrastructure and give them the ability to do this. Uh, you can't rely on the kindness of strangers forever. You have to build a local infrastructure for delivering this kind of health care uh, if it's really going to succeed over the long run. Yeah, you have your neighbor comes over in some cases to make sure that you're taking your medications. That's right. We actually saw a case of that in a rural housing project in, in Russia. 
uh, where an elderly woman had had her tuberculosis cured, and it was somebody who was uh, in the building next door. And they actually had a, a very important uh, principle, which was the easiest thing would be, say, you just appoint some family member to do it. But they say, no, you can't do that. We, they don't allow family members to do it because it's very easy for like a brother to, or a son to tell his mother, don't bother me anymore. Get out of here. I don't want to take those. You know, you could almost foment family spats. So mm-hmm. they make it actually a requirement that a neighbor do it rather than somebody who's inside your own family. Now, do the public health officials, well, the public health officials know, but do the other uh, political officials understand that the very conditions that I'm not even talking about the economic conditions, but just the structures that incarcerate people, the, the crowding, all of that contributes not only to the transmission of the disease, but to actually to the evolution of the disease. Well, I think they understand it, but you know, uh, if you're dealing, we, we did visit a prison system there, and I, and I think that, uh, uh, in the prisons, uh, you have to remember that these are not people, uh, that the society, uh, looks on with great fondness. If you've been sent to prison, it's like any society. You are an outcast. You have been cast out of society. And so, while they recognize it from a public health point of view, it's not like they're being given the resources to set up some kind of spa for these people. And uh, so it's, on the one hand, you could say, yes, when they put people who are uh, infected with multi-drug tuberculosis in the same ward together, if they isolate them from everybody else, but they're all in there together, you say, my God, it, you could have transmission and retransmission between each other. It's yeah. sort of like a, a colony for breeding this stuff. It's an incubation center. Exactly. And, and, and you, 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 you gotta realize, well, but look how, what they've actually done though. They've isolated them. They're all being treated with the drugs. Uh, there are cure cases that are taking place. When they become sputum negative, they get moved out into another center where they're not being exposed uh, to the other people who are still sputum positive. So they've really put in place a system where, given the limited resources, uh, they're doing the best that they can. But, you know, uh, I, in an ideal situation, that's not how you would treat it. No, and especially a, a prison or a hospital has a semi-permeable membrane there are people coming in and out of that place all day, and some of that multidrug-resistant TB can get out into the general population through a guard or a cook, and uh, so it's in everybody's enlightened self-interest to make sure that the people in those situations get treated as much as possible. Well, and of course, that was one of the tra- most tragic stories that uh, we saw there. We actually also visited a, the tuberculosis sanatorium. Uh, which was run not as a prison system hospital, but the, you know where the tuberculosis hospital for the entire province, where if you you were sent if you got tuberculosis until you were uh, sputum negative, it could go back into the community. And we saw a young girl who had what is called XDR tuberculosis, extremely resistant tuberculosis, which means that. You would, she failed the drug for multi-drug resistant TB. What happened to her? And she was only like 22 years old, and she'd been there for three years, and she'd had half of one of her lungs removed already in an operation. What happened to her? She lived in a housing project. A man got out of prison, 
he had been uh, sort of like the first anecdote of our first story. He had been in prison. He had gotten tuberculosis. He had been cured. He'd gotten it again. He was taking the regimen again, but his term was up. He was free to go. When the minute he got out of prison, he stopped taking the drugs. And, of course, the disease that came back was multidrug resistant. A similar situation, a man got out of prison. He moved into her housing complex after getting out, and he, uh, multidrug resistant tuberculosis came raging back in him, and he spread it to her. So her initial infection, you know, she could have caught it in, in the hallways, wherever. And uh, she originally got multidrug resistant TB. Well, she was young, rather fragile. She couldn't keep the drugs down. She was constantly vomiting from the side effects. And as a result, she went off therapy, even though she was in the hospital, and ended up with extremely resistant tuberculosis. And it was taking them three years. But to get to the broader point that you raised when you asked the question, exactly. These places are incubators of plagues, the prisons. People are going in and out of prison all the time. They return back to society, and they're returning back to a society that Russia is, especially out in Siberia. Parts of it are, you know, what you would call, you know, second world. And uh, it's not the extreme poverty of an African nation or uh, some other parts of the world. It's not third world, but, you know, the... The detritus of the Soviet system has left pockets of Russia with extreme poverty. And uh, this, this, there were parts of this town where we were, Tom's, that certainly fell into that category. And uh, if memory serves, I think we have over 2 million people incarcerated in the U.S. That's right. We're a population that's significantly larger, you know, one-third larger. But, our, you know, our, our, pop- our population per capita is probably the highest in the world or among them. A prison population. Prison population. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a uh, condition that, that is just below the surface at all times, all around the world. And this can happen anywhere. Absolutely. Uh, this is a fascinating package. It's up on our website. Let's take just a couple of minutes. You're the author. A book came out a few years ago, The $800 Million Pill. And uh, while we have you here, tell us a little bit about that book. Well, uh, it came out in 2004, uh, and it was an effort to look at the drug development process uh, in a sort of holistic way, to look at where the sources of innovation were in in the pharmaceutical industry and the biotechnology industry, and, you know, what were the real drivers of that? Is it money, which is what we all so often hear, it costs $800 million to develop a new drug? Uh, what I tried to point out in the book by looking at a whole series of stories of some of the more innovative drugs that have come out over the past quarter century, this is to say that really uh, pharmaceutical innovation, biotech innovation, is a product of uh, science, a lot of that funded in the public sector, and the interaction of science with public health need and sort of devoting the societal resources and intellectual energy to sort of come up with new approaches to diseases that are the really serious things that we face as a society. doesn't guarantee success. Uh, but certainly the idea that you can simply pour money into a disease state and somehow get new drugs out that will cure it at the bottom of some process uh, is really not the way drug development has happened over the years. Uh, and the book is a, try, a, a way of trying to uh, put the third dimension into a, a debate over the cost of developing new drugs that uh, I found all too often was lacking in public discussions about the issue. And the book also points out just how many drugs actually are discovered because a lot of them are natural products 
uh, in our government labs or in our government-funded labs. Absolutely. You know, it was less true. I mean, it was much more true uh, if you if you look back, uh, you know, say before 1990 or so. Uh, but uh, in the last two decades, we've had a much higher emphasis on the private sector being the primary driver of drug innovation. And I think one of the great ironies that is rarely pointed out is that as we have shifted more to a private sector emphasis in bringing new significant drugs to market, uh, the number of new drugs coming uh, being approved by the FDA has steadily fallen. And in fact, last year was at the lowest level uh, in uh, several generations. So uh, I think uh, recent experiences suggested that uh, when you allow money to drive the process rather than science and public health need, you can often wander into blind alleys. And it's because the marketing needs of those organizations, hey, they're for-profit companies. That's what they're there to do is, is to make money. That's their primary obligation is to their stockholders. Uh, the, but as one of the people that I quoted in my book pointed out, when you're looking at the market to tell you what to do, then it's by definition not innovative because the market is already always about what already exists. And to find what's really needed, you really have to be much closer to the bedside, much closer to the public health needs of a given society. We could, the drug industry, if it wanted to, could be developing drugs, new, new and better antibiotics for tuberculosis, for instance. But it doesn't because the market for those drugs is too small for them to really devote significant resources. And that's why you have so many nonprofit groups that sprung up in the last 10, 15 years, many of them funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, to a certain extent, uh, multilateral organizations, uh, to develop new drugs for what are called neglected diseases of the developing world. They may not be a market, but there definitely is a social need. And given resources, not the level of resources that industry would spend on a new drug, but a sufficient level of resources, it's possible to come up with new drugs, new vaccines for many of those diseases. And there's thousands of scientists out there working on it. And, of course, uh, the fourth part of the series on tuberculosis takes a look at some of those efforts. Not to mention the market does not take into account the societal economic cost when one of these diseases breaks out and is not treatable. That's right. This has been great talking to you. I uh, really urge everybody to read the report on our website. And, uh, Merrill, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Merrill's articles and slideshows are all available at Siam.com. Also, check out his blog at www.gooznews.com. G-O-O-Z-N-E-W-S. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, new higher incarceration levels account for 60% of the increase in TB in post-communist European countries. Story two, cows apparently have the ability to sense the Earth's magnetic field. Story three, Neanderthal stone tools were inferior to Homo sapiens, which could be why Neanderthals went extinct. And story four, ear infections in infancy may be linked to adult obesity. Time's up. Story one is true. A study just reported in the August 26th edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences 
finds that the rise in prison populations in post-communist countries accounts for 60% of new TB cases, as well as a significant share of multidrug-resistant TB. Story 4 is true. Chronic ear infections in infancy may be linked to adult obesity because ear infections can damage a nerve that passes through the middle ear and controls taste sensation, which may intensify the desire for fatty or high-calorie foods. The study was announced at a meeting of the American Chemical Society. And story two is true. An analysis of Google Earth images finds that most cows stand aligned with the Earth's magnetic poles. We milk this story further in the August 26th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story three about Neanderthal stone tools being inferior to Homo sapiens is totally bogus. Because a new study in the Journal of Human Evolution finds that Neanderthal's tools were every bit as good as our own. Although nobody had yet invented bits. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com to check out Meryl Guzner's reporting on TB from Russia. You can write to us at podcast at Siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.